Good morning. I'm excited to be here with you on this weekend before Christmas. This morning we're talking about Jesus Christ as our everlasting Father. And in a few moments we're going to be reading from Isaiah 9-6 again. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and we'll be reading there in just a few moments. <clears throat> but I wanted to begin by reading a few quick excerpts from some letters that have been written. The first words of this woman's letter read, Dear Dad, did you even want me? Another woman wrote, I wanted him to want me. I wanted to be Daddy's little girl. I wanted that chance. I wanted my biological father to accept me, and I couldn't figure out why he didn't. The truth is, when you are left by a parent, you wonder why, time and time again, you wonder, what is wrong with me? And you become afraid, because if someone who is meant to love you unconditionally doesn't or won't, who really could ever love you? Who else would leave? Why would anyone really stay? According to a report by the U.S. Census Bureau, an estimated 24.7 million children, that's 33%, live absent of their biological fathers. One article reads this way, There's been no greater villain in the story of mankind than the bad father, the one who hits or humiliates, the one who doesn't show up, the one who leaves, or the one who won't leave, the drunk or the liar or the condescending, I'll just leave that word out. Bad fathers have ruined more lives than famine and war put together, bruising and battering their sons and daughters emotionally, mentally, and or physically, and dooming them to repeat the cycle generation after generation until kingdom come. And too many people in our world know all too well what it is like to live with a father who is less than perfect. Live with a father who's abusive, who is just crushing to a child's spirit. And far too many children know what it's like to live without a father completely. The world is a dark place. And that's why the good news of Isaiah 9-6 is such good news that the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shine. Would you stand with me as we look at verse 6 together? We've read this many times already, but let's let it sink in again. Isaiah 9, 6 reads, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
prince of peace. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In the midst of darkness, Isaiah cries out that one is coming. There is given to the human race a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. And as we pointed out last week, this one has arrived. And Mark's gospel makes that so vividly clear. Jesus is the one that the world has been waiting for. He's the one that the world has been longing for, that has needed desperately for so long. For all of us who have had less than perfect, limited, temporary fathers, or or for those of us who have had fathers who are just MIA, this message is particularly good for us. But before we get into how good this news really is, there's, there's some technical things that we need to address very quickly. Some of you who know a thing or two about God, a thing or two about Scripture, about theology, may have already picked up on this. And that is the question, how can Jesus be called the everlasting Father when God the Father is the Father? How does that work? Isaiah, do you understand how, who God is? Do you understand your, your own theology here? The doctrine of the Trinity, it makes it clear, this, as clear as can be, this difficult to understand reality that there is one God and yet there are three persons. Three distinct persons. And it breaks, if we break it down into to whose and what's, there's one what. There's one what. That's what Deuteronomy 6.4 tells us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God, make no mistake. There's one what, but there are three whose. There are three persons. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're of equal value equal importance, equal power, even the same substance. And yet they have different personalities and different roles. And this is mind-boggling to, to us feeble human beings. We don't have, we don't have a, a paradigm for this. We don't, we don't have a box to put this in and say, this makes sense to us. And people try to come up with all sorts of different analogies to understand the Trinity. But the reality is, God is utterly different. He's holy. He's perfect. He's, there's a strangeness about Him. Finite beings, their minds cannot adequately comprehend Him. And, and when you think about it, that's really the way it should be. If God is God, if he is this all-powerful, supreme, awesome, infinite being, wouldn't it make sense that finite beings just couldn't quite get their minds around it? There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So how can the Son be the Father? And this is where we need to understand that when Isaiah is using these names here in Isaiah 9-6, notice he says, his name shall be called he's 
He's called these things. These names are not necessarily defining his personhood, but they are used here to describe how he, this child that is to be born, how he is going to relate to the people living in darkness. It's how he's going to interact with them. It's a description of the roles he is going to play here. Charles Spurgeon wrote... He wrote about the use of these role-descriptive names in Scripture. He says this, God is called the father of the fatherless. And then he says, and Job says of himself that he became a father to the poor. And Spurgeon says, you know what it means. Of course, at once. It means that he exercised a father's part. That's exactly what we're talking about here. When Jesus is called Everlasting Father by Isaiah, Isaiah is saying he's going to exercise a father's part. He's not, it's, it's not that God, somehow God the Father, is going to come down and disguise himself as God the Son. That leads us into a dangerous territory, something called modalism. It's a heretical viewpoint that, that says that God is, it's, God is one. So how do I understand God being one when he's, there's three? Well, the, the way I'll understand it is kind of like the, the, the water analogy here, where you, know, you, have, you have water, and at times water can be ice, or it could be liquid water, or it could turn into steam. It can be a vapor, right? And so modalism says, well, well, God is one, but he exists in different modes. And so God, at times, will put on the God hat, the God the Father hat. And then at other times, when he steps into history and he becomes human, well, he puts on the Son hat. And now he's floating around kind of in this spirit role, so he puts on the Holy Spirit hat. So there's one God, he just takes on, he goes into these different modes here. But that is not biblical. The Bible makes it clear that God exists in these three distinct persons at the same time. And it's true in the Bible. We don't find the word Trinity, but we see the triune God woven in and out of Scripture all over the place. In creation, we see God saying, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. He's talking to himself, the three persons in the Trinity. At Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, you hear the Father in heaven making this pronouncement, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And at the same time, the Son is standing right there, standing in the water. Everyone can see it. And they hear this voice. And then at the same time, the Spirit comes down as a dove. So here we have this incredible example of all three distinct personhoods of God present at the same time god is one and yet he's three father the father is the father the son is the son and the spirit is the spirit and jesus made it clear that this oneness is not is not threatened here jesus said in john ten thirty, he said i and the father are one it's clear we're, we're one yes this distinct persons but we're one we're god in John 10:38 he went on to say the father is in me and I 
am in the Father. So what Isaiah is getting at here in, in, in verse 6 is that Jesus here, he's not the Father, God the Father. The personhoods don't, don't merge into in and out of one another. It's not that. But he has a fatherly role when it comes to his relationship, how he's going to relate to these people. Spurgeon points out, according to the old Jewish custom, an elder brother was the father of the family in absence of the father. The firstborn took precedence of all and took upon himself the father's position. So the Lord Jesus, the firstborn among many brethren, exercises to us a father's office. So Isaiah is trying to describe the special relationship that Jesus has to his people. Another important thing for us to notice here is this word everlasting. When Isaiah says everlasting, he's not saying that God the Son for all eternity has existed as the God-man, fully God and fully human for all eternity, backwards and forwards. That's who the Son has always been. He's not saying that. God the Son, also known as the, the divine logos or the divine word, he's, he's always existed. God the Son has always existed. The divine logos has always existed because he is God. That's what John tells us in John chapter 1. But Jesus, the Messiah, he's the Son, he's the Logos, he's the Word, but he became flesh. The Messiah came. So there was a point in history where God the Son took on human flesh and was that way from that point on. But the Messiah did not exist for all history. So when he says everlasting, we're not somehow to think that Jesus, the, the Son, the God-man, the fully human, fully God, goes back into before the time of creation. That's not what he's saying here. We need to understand when, when Isaiah says everlasting, he's talking about this special relationship that Jesus is going to have with his people, that's going to go on and on. That relationship, this, this fatherly relationship, it's not going to end. And that's really good news. One pastor I heard describes it as Jesus is a forever father. He's a forever father to us. He will never abandon his children. Isn't that good news? He will always be a father to us. You can count on him. You can rely on him. You can trust him. You can expect that what he says he will do, he will do. And you have no need to fear that his attitude towards you is ever going to change. No one is ever going to write, Dear Dad, Dear Jesus, did you even want me? He's a forever father. 
And in the time we have left, I'd just like to to go into a little bit, a tiny, scratch the surface, really, on what it means for Jesus to be an everlasting Father to us. This is good news today. First thing, He knows us completely. He knows us completely. How many children have ever wondered if Dad ever really knew them? Does dad even know me? I mean, how could he know me? He's not there all the time. He's at work most of the time. Is is he really available to listen when I need him to listen? I mean, how often does he just seem to get impatient and not really care about the things that are going on in my life? They're big things to me, to him. It just seems like, oh, it's just nothing's important to him. How many times have I seen him just lose his temper and flip out? But Jesus is an eternal father to his children. He's an eternal father. He knew them even before they were born. That's what David acknowledges in Psalm 139. Indulge me here. Let's just read through this. This is so good. Oh Lord, you, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is is too wonderful for me. It's, It's high. I cannot attain to it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, that is, go as far east as possible, and, and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, that's going as far west as possible for David. And even there, your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the, light, uh, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. (laughs) Your everlasting God knows you completely. One of the lonelier moments of my life was my first day of public school. I was a homeschool kid up to that point and was very introverted, very shy, didn't want to interact with, with anyone, and yet I found myself here sitting early in the morning on a bench just outside of the gymnasium at Glendora High School. And my hair was, was slicked and parted very well. That little part in the back, though, I couldn't get to go down. 
My shorts were, were and his shirt were a little out of step with the, the things I was noticing other kids wearing. And I was sitting there, and, and through my plus four prescription glasses, I saw another student walking up to me. And I vividly remember him saying, why do you wear your socks so high? <laughs> and at that moment, I just felt like a freak of nature, totally alone, totally out of place. How good it would have been for me to have rolling around in my head Psalm 139 at that moment. It would have been so good. In those moments when you feel insignificant, you feel like no one notices, no one cares, know that you have an everlasting Father who knows you completely and cares for you. He knows you by name. He knows every single nucleotide in your DNA. He knows that He created you for a purpose. He actually created you he intentionally created you for himself. And if you placed your trust in him, the most fundamental piece of your identity now is that you're his kid. He's your dad. This is your everlasting father. And he knows you completely. Now, for some, maybe, maybe even some in this room, hearing that somebody knows you completely may not be such a welcome idea. <laughs> I don't know if I want to be everything about me to be known. What about those, those things that I don't want anyone to discover about me? If, if my everlasting Father and is all-powerful and, and all-knowing and, and he's righteous and holy and he knows me completely, that might be a really bad thing. Have you ever been afraid that someone was going to find you out? They were going to find out something about you that you didn't want them to know. I can remember as a kid growing up, the most terrifying words we could hear mom say were, your father's going to hear about this when, you get, when he gets home. And we would just go, no, don't tell dad, please, don't let him know. And my dad was a good father. <laughs> there was one time, though, that he came home and he reached into the TV cabinet and he ripped our Sega Genesis right out of that thing and he threw it across the room. And we all went, we need to go somewhere else right now. Sometimes we don't want to be known. Sometimes we fear our earthly fathers. We doubt their goodness from time to time. But if Christ is our eternal father, we have nothing to fear. And that's because not only does he know us completely, he forgives us definitively. Definitively. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Psalm 103? We're going to camp out in Psalm 103 for a little while here. We'll just look at verse 1 to start, verses 1 through 3. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What's the first one here? 
who forgives all your iniquity. An earthly father might be forgiving. He might even forgive most things. But even the best of us don't do it perfectly. But the forgiveness that God offers us in Christ, it is all-encompassing. When he forgives, he forgives it all, and he forgives it forever. Forever. So get out of your mind that there are some things that you may have done that are too dastardly, too horrific for God to forgive. God sees all sin is despicable. He doesn't look and say, okay, well, that was a little white lie there. Okay, well, that's not such a big... No, there are no little white lies. They're all lies, and they all have their origin from that original liar, the father of lies, Satan. Out of the seven things listed that the Lord hates in Proverbs 6, two of them have to do with lying. It doesn't give a scale as to whether they were little white ones or big bad black ones. That's not even in the picture. Sin is sin and God hates it. And that's what makes his forgiveness so wonderful. All the more wonderful. Verse 3 here says in Psalm 103.3, He forgives all your iniquity. All your iniquity. Now, that doesn't mean that God just overlooks sin. He's not like a parent that's just so exasperated. The kids are running wild. They're throwing toys all over the place. I mean, bananas, peels are left on the ground, and yogurt has been thrown at the wall, and the parent has just said, stop, so many times that they just, they're, they're completely exhausted, and they just, all right, I give up. Do what you want. Destroy the house fine with me. God is not like that. He doesn't just give up and say, fine, whatever, I give up. No, God cannot let wrongdoing go. It's in his character to be perfectly just. He can't let it go. He's not like Santa Claus that will exchange coal for a bag of toys as long as you're mostly good. He's not like that. That's not how it works. Look at verse 4. It says, he redeems your life from the pit. That's where you and I belong. In the pit. In the place of punishment. Just, just as all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God belong there. We deserve our just desserts. And, and Romans tells us that those deserts, those wages, are death. You and I deserve the pit. We deserve death. We deserve to be separated from God and all that is good, all the good that he has to offer. We deserve to be completely cut off from that for all eternity. And that's where we would all be were it not for this everlasting Father. Were it not for Jesus Christ going to the cross like a father will often do for his children. I'll make a sacrifice for them. They're hurting. They're in trouble. They can't get their way out of this. I'll do it. And Jesus does it. He goes to the cross so that we can be forgiven. Through his blood, we are redeemed. We're redeemed from the pit. Our ticket from the pit has been purchased. Look at verse 10, Psalm 103:10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquity. Thank God 
for his goodness and mercy. Earthly fathers, they'll often give us exactly what we deserve. I can remember frequent trips out to the garage after dinner because somebody didn't eat their peas. And up on the wall in the garage, there was a paddle that hung there. And, and, and as it hung on the wall, you would see a happy face on one side of it. But oh, if it came off the wall, you would see the other face. And no one wanted to see that other face. We got justice in our home. We got the justice that we so often deserved. So many fathers in their anger give far more than what their children deserve. But our eternal Father does not give us what we deserve. He made a way for us to escape. And not only that, the forgiveness that he offers, it, it's, it's definitive. It's, it's taken care of. It's done. Look at verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Once our sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ, they are gone. They're just gone. I know a certain little girl, when she does wrong things, she just feels so bad. She has to keep asking, or keep saying, I'm sorry, Dad. And then 10 minutes later, Dad, Dad, I'm really sorry. Another 10 minutes, Dad, I'm just, I'm so sorry. She feels so badly about what she did that she can't imagine that All she needs to do is say, sorry, will you forgive me? And then I say, yes, I forgive you. And then it's done. It doesn't even make sense to her. And I try so hard to help her realize that's the way forgiveness is supposed to work. And God does that perfectly. Whereas there may be times in my life where I'm recalling some of the things that she's done, and maybe there's not complete forgiveness, and then I'm punishing her the next time just a little bit more severely because, of, because I really didn't forgive her about for the last offense. God doesn't do that. He banishes our sin from his presence. As far as the east is from the west, you can't get any farther than that because that is infinitely far. It just keeps going. He forgives us definitively. And finally, He loves us relentlessly. He loves us relentlessly. Last week we we quoted S.M. Lockridge, Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, Lockridge, and he said, no means of measure can define His limitless love. I love that. Look look back at 103. Psalm 103, verse 8 reads, The Lord is merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Abounding. It just keeps, it's just like bubbling over. This steadfast, unshakable love that he has for his children. As many fathers do, I love my kids, and I do almost anything. Them. And I want to give them good things. But my love has limits. <laughs> there are times when my patience runs out. There are times when my kids have crossed the line too far or too many times. Times when I don't feel like being close to them. That happened to me yesterday. Just Quincy was all over me. and It's like, you need to give me space. 
times when I'm, I'm tired of listening to just the, the, the monotony of things that, that are just being spoken over and over again, tired of fetching things for them. There are times when I, I hate to admit it, I don't care about the latest owie that you got. Times when I, I got my scales out and I'm weighing just how much I have given you and how little I have received back. There are times when I just can't wait for them to go to bed. We need to be done here. Close your eyes and go to sleep. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to see you. I want to pretend that you don't exist for now. But Christ's love is not like that. His love is not like mine. Thank God. He abounds in steadfast love. His love is constant. It's unwavering. He doesn't tire of pouring it out on his children. He doesn't grow impatient. He doesn't say, all right, I'm given, I've given you all that I'm willing to give. The fountain's turned off. You're done. His love is so great that the Bible tells us that his love is actually bringing people back to himself, bringing people to repentance. God pours out his love in such a way that his love brings, it draws them back. It's his love that is pursuing people. That's what the message of the gospel does. We come to realize the extent of our sin, the punishment that should be ours. And then we hear the news of the gospel and God's great love and how he sent Jesus Christ to us even before, even before we wanted anything to do with him. Romans 5 eight. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The order there is so important. While we were still sinners, it wasn't that we, we, we belted out these desperate cries and they just came pounding on the doors of heaven and God's ears just were ringing with our cries for help. And he said, all right, finally, all right, enough. I will go help these people now just to shut them up. No, that's not how it works. We didn't love God. We didn't seek Him. We didn't want to have anything to do with Him. It's all because of His relentless love that pursued us. Like a shepherd that leaves 99 sheep in search for one. Or like a father who stands there waiting at the fence, scanning the horizon, longing, longing to greet that wayward son. When any earthly father would have given up on us, Christ pursues us with his love. And it was only then that we came to love him. We love him because he first loved us. Psalm 103:17 The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. From your eternal Father flows this perfect, relentless, everlasting love. It's the kind of love that you were made for. The kind of love that you and I, we long for. The kind of love that will never be found in the arms of anyone else other than Jesus Christ. He knew you before you were born. 
He made a plan to rescue you because he knew that you would walk away. He preserved you even in your rebellion. He came after you when you didn't want to have anything to do with him. He opens your blind eyes to his truth. He embraces you. He washes you in all your filth. He adopts you into his family and he seats you in a heavenly place of royalty. He's the one we've been waiting for. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. As good as they may be, our earthly fathers will disappoint. They will disappoint. They will grow impatient. They will get angry. They will get exasperated. They will be disinterested. They will be untruthful at times. They will be unforgiving at times. They will be unkind at times possibly unloving. In short, they will fail. Even even those that seem as close as you could possibly get to the perfect father, their days are numbered. And there comes a time where they can't be there for us anymore. The good news of Christmas is, is that there is one who knows you completely, who forgives you definitively, who loves you relentlessly, and that one has come. His name is Jesus. He's the everlasting Father. And apart from him, there is no greater, more satisfying, more lasting love that exists. He's the Father that will never abandon his children. You can count on him. You can trust him, rely on him, expect that he's going to come through on what he said and that his attitude towards you is not going to change. Do you know him? Most important thing you can do in life is to trust Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me? And if you're here with us this morning, and you're not sure that you have trusted, entrusted yourself to the loving, caring arms of Jesus Christ, this is the time to do it. There's no better time than right now to say, Jesus, I need you. I am one of those who walked away. I am one of those who have done my own thing. I am one of those who, yes have sinned. But what you did on the cross in showing me your loving pursuit of me as you died the death that I should have died, I'm astounded. And through that I can be washed clean and forgiven. I want that. Bring me out of darkness and into your marvelous light. I want to know you to be known by you, to be your child, and for you to be my father. Would you cross that line this morning and say, yes, God, that is what I need. That is what I want. That is who I want to be. Lord, I thank you that it's as simple as that. It's not about reciting the right lines or doing any type of magic chants or dances or anything like that. It's simply faith. It's simply us trusting in Jesus.
He's the one that makes us clean. He's the son that was given for me so that I might be redeemed out of the pit. Lord, thank you for that. And thank you, God, that you are the everlasting father that comes through on your promises. And when you say that we will be saved by trusting in you, you mean it. And you do it. Your Holy Spirit comes inside, washes us clean, and begins the transformation process from the inside out, Lord. We thank you for that. Lord, if there are people who are here today that that have stepped over that line, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them, that you would bless them, that you would bring people around them who might speak into them and begin walking with them, that they might grow in their relationship with you. And God, we pray for tomorrow night for our Christmas Eve service as we know that there will be guests who are invited. And we pray that the gospel message will go forth with clarity and conviction and your spirit will work and you will bring people to yourself. That's why we're here. Lord, thank you for this time that we've had to acknowledge you as our good and everlasting Father far superior to any father we have ever known before. Thank you for knowing us, for forgiving us, for loving us, Lord. Thank you that our identity is found in you. We love you. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.